So Jews have lived in parts of what is today modern Ukraine on the northern shores of the Black Sea of modern southern Ukraine, probably going back to our second temple period, or probably more than 2,000 years. We know there were Jewish trading posts, um, probably as part of the Jewish Silk Route that transferred silk and other things between Europe and Asia. And uh, so Jews lived there in on the south of the southern Dead Sea, uh, uh, Black Sea, Crimea, and other southern lands around the around the Black Sea. When the Romans conquered the region, southern Ukraine, around the year 40, there was already a Jewish community living there in Crimea and in other parts of southern Ukraine. We don't have good recorded history about early history in Ukraine. By the seventh century, that's the 600s, there was a group of what today we would call Turkic tribes called the Khuzars that settled what's called the Caucasus area, which is the area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, now the countries of Georgia and Azerbaijan. And so there was this nation called Khuzars that built an empire in um, the Caucasus area, and it spread on both, all, it built into a pretty large empire, and it spread across to Crimea and to southern Ukraine. Um, Kiev, what's today the capital of Ukraine, was thought to have originally been a Khuzar city. Um, and uh, Jews seem to have lived in, already in the um, seven, eight hundreds, seem to have already lived in Khuzar lands um, in large numbers. Jews were already spread out across the world by then, um, and Jews, are, Jews lived in Khuzar cities. Around the 10th century, so around the 800s and the 900s, um, the Khuzar leaders adopted Judaism. Um, and at that time, Khuzaria already had a significant Jewish community, and many of their nobles then became Jewish. The kings and the royal family and many of the nobles became Jewish as well. We did a class a couple months ago about the Khuzar kingdom and the history of the Khuzars. Around that time, around the 10th century, Slavs, Slavic tribes, um, which were the grandparents of what's today the Russians or most Eastern European nations, um, conquered northern Ukraine and built a kingdom with Kiev as its capital. And they were known as the Kievan Rus, or they were actually the original Rus, or the original what today we call Russians. Um, although they aren't technically grandparents of the Russians, and that's been uh, debated a lot uh, in recent weeks. Uh, but there are many records of Jewish life in Kiev during this period. A thousand, this is going back a thousand years. One of the three gates to the city of Kiev was called the Jewish Gate. And we know that Jewish Gate was next to the Jewish market. So there was a significant Jewish community um, in Kiev. And the Jewish community in Kiev was there before the Slavs were there. Um, so Ukraine was Jewish before it was Ukrainian. And that is true for many places in Europe and the Middle East where tribes moved over time and uh, often the inhabitants today were not there a thousand years ago. <laughs> and, <coughs> excuse me, in many places, the Jews were there first in many of these places. 
So the Jews of Ukraine during this period were primarily what we call Romani Jews. Romani Jews were Jews, they were sim had similar customs and traditions to the Jews of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was Orthodox Christian, it was the remnants of the Roman Empire in what today is modern Turkey. And so the Jews that lived in that area in Greece, Turkey, what was then the Byzantine Empire were called Romani Jews. They were somewhat different from both Sephardic Jews in Spain and Ashkenazic Jews, as well as Mizrahi Jews, Ashkenazic Jews in Germany and Mizrahi Jews in Iraq and uh, Iran. Uh, but so the Jews of Ukraine seem to have been connected with the Jews just south of the Black Sea in the Byzantine Empire. Um, they were known as Romani Jews. Gradually, Ashkenazic Jews from Germany began moving eastward because they were being persecuted in Germany. They were expelled from France, um, expelled from England, and expelled from some principalities in Germany. And gradually, as Ashkenazic Jews moved eastward, Ashkenazic Jews began to move into Ukraine. And we have records already in the um, 1100s of Jews going of Kievan Jews in yeshivas in Germany, studying in schools in Germany um, and uh, corresponding back and forth with Jews in Ukraine with Jews in Germany. In 1241, the Mongols invaded Ukraine around that though during those years, the Mongols spread um, across most of Asia and into Europe. And uh, they really devastated every single place they came to. And uh, the Mongol invasion, 1230s, 1240s, was really the um, catalyst, was really the, um, really changed history in that part of the world. Um, most of Asia, um, even Eastern Europe, were all impacted by this Mongol invasion, which essentially defeated every single empire in its place and really devastated entire regions. They were very barbaric, and they just killed people wherever they were, um, depopulated whole areas. And they defeated the Kievan Rus as well, conquering Kiev and conquering all of, most of what is today modern Ukraine. The Mongols were, most of their military people were not actual Mongols, but were Turks. The Turks were a group of tribes that lived then in Central Asia, and uh, the Turks had joined the Mongol armies. And um, the Turks moved in very large numbers to, uh, moved westward to um, what would later be Byzant what would later become Turkey and um, the Caucasus region and to Southern Ukraine. And the groups in Southern Ukraine were known as Tartars. So the Tartars, built first what was called the Golden Horde Kingdom, um, but then later built Tartar kingdoms in southern Ukraine. Um, in northern Ukraine, they not long afterwards all converted to Islam, um, and it became, southern Ukraine became Muslim Tartar land. Today they're still called Crimean Tartars, the remnants of those Tartars that lived in southern Ukraine. Um, but large parts of southern Ukraine were depopulated, and as a result, in large parts of Ukraine altogether was, were depopulated. Jewish communities appear to have suffered similar fates and were largely wiped out from Ukraine, together with 
Khazars in southern Ukraine, um, together with large numbers of Rus, or the grandparents of the Ukrainians. Uh, many of them were destroyed um, in this during this invasion, and there really isn't much of a Jewish community for a little while, um, for the next few hundred years. Um, now, at this point, the Poles and um, Lithuanians be, started building a kingdom to the north in what today would be modern-day Poland, Belarus, uh, modern-day um, modern Poland, um, even parts of what today is Germany um, and Czechoslovakia became part of what was then the Polish, uh, Polish and Lithuanian kingdoms. Um, gradually, the Lithuanian kingdom captured the Kievan Rus kingdom in northern Ukraine. Um, and at that time, Jews began to move in very, very, this is, we're, going, we're now about the 1300s, Jews now began to move in very, very large numbers from Germany and from other areas, from Italy and Spain as well, to Eastern Europe, to Poland and Lithuania. They opened their doors to Jews, gave Jews almost equal rights, full autonomy to manage their own communities. Jews had almost their own aut aut autonomous community, almost entirely autonomous within um, Poland. They also helped develop these newly uh, conquered uh, lands. They helped develop them. They helped with administration, tax collection, funding, financing, um, and Jews were really involved in the administration throughout Poland and what became the Poland-Lithuanian kingdoms. Jews were also um, involved in crafts. They were very, very involved in trades. And by the 1500s, the Jewish communities in Poland and Lithuania had become the largest Jewish community in the world. Um, and by then, there, were, there was a huge number, hundreds of thousands of Jews living, or one of the largest in the world, hundreds of thousands of Jews living in um, Poland and Lithuania. In 1569, the Polish and Lithuanian kingdoms merged to create the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the Jews in this kingdom were now one of the largest Jewish communities in the world, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and so this, this kingdom covered all of northern Ukraine, modern-day Belarus, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, um, Czech, Slovakia, parts of Hungary. Um, it was a Western Ukraine. It was a very, very large kingdom. Um, and there were many, many Jews spread throughout. Jews, unlike in other places where Jews tended to live in urban places, because they tend to be craftsmen and um, and traders, they tend to live in the larger places. In Pol in the Polish-Lithuanian kingdom, Jews tend to live in the small towns because they served as administrators for the noble estates. Um, and they often also um, were in charge of the mills and the distilleries and uh, various other non-farming jobs on the estates, um, managing various things. And so as a result, Jews ended up living in many of the villages uh, where these estates, where these various um, no, uh, Polish estates were. And that's where, essentially where the shtetl came from, right? Where the um, small towns where Jews began to live in. At the same time, southern Ukraine came, which was 
inhabited then by Tartars, came under Ottoman rule. There were smaller Jewish communities there, and those Jewish communities were more connected to the thriving Jewish community in Turkey. Uh, many Jews, Jews had been expelled from Spain in 1492 and Portugal a couple years later. A big chunk of them moved to the Ottoman Empire, which covered much of the Mediterranean. Um, the largest group being in Greece and Turkey, which was part of then the Ottoman Empire. And uh, they and so they weren't far from the Jews in Crimea and southern Ukraine. So Jews had various challenges. I mean, they wasn't all that rosy, but things were pretty good until 1648. The Cossacks were a military class of Ukrainians, and society was. Um, was ruled by classes. There were the nobles, there were the serfs, they had their own classes. Um, you know, you were born into whatever you were. The serfs were born slaves, the nobles were born nobles. So there was another class in Ukraine, a, a military class, where they, they were strong people, powerful, and they served in the military. Um, and they, they essentially had their own military groups, and their children kind of were born into it. And they were called the Cossacks. The Cossacks were part of the Polish kingdom, and they defended the southern Polish border. Then the, the Poland's southern neighbor was the Ottoman Empire. So they defended, and they were a constant war with the Ottoman Empire. So they defended Poland from the Ottoman Empire. But they always agitated against the Poles. And this was particularly because um, hundreds of years earlier, the um, Kievan Rus, along with the Muscovites, which were another Slavic group that later became known as Russians, um, converted to Orthodox Christianity, the Christianity that was the Christianity as it was observed in the Byzantine Empire in what had then been Turkey. The Poles and Lithuanians had converted to Catholicism around the same time. The Ukrainians hated the Poles mostly because they were Catholics. And the, the Poles were Catholics, and the Ukrainians were Orthodox Christians. And so in 1648, the Cossacks, led by a fellow called Bogdan Khmelnytsky, switched sides and allied himself, allied the Cossacks with the Ottomans in an attempt to free Ukraine from the Poles. And as the Cossacks swept through Ukraine in 1648, and they captured much of Ukraine and even went deep into Poland, they brutally killed all the Jews in every town they captured. Wherever they came, they rounded up all the Jews in the town and they killed them. This was not even with bullets, this was by hand. And they, with, with brutal, we have many, many depictions of what we call in Yiddish, Xeris Tachvetat, the 1648-1649 um, uh, tragedy. And um, we have many depictions of it and very, very um, gruesome uh, and skinning people alive, burning people alive, cutting, dismembering people. I mean, very, very gruesome. The women were raped. Um, very gruesome. And they really went village to village, town to town, rounded up the Jews, some town, you know, villages that had small number of Jews working on the nobles' estate, um, and really killed them. Um, and wherever they went. Um, why did they attack the Jews? Uh, people often blame the, or historians often blame the Jewish role in administering the Polish, Polish estates 
as a reason for the pogroms. Um, of course, the serfs joined, the Hungarian serfs who were slaves on the estates, um, joined the pogroms. But contemporary accounts that we have, and we have many contemporary accounts of these pogroms, describe it more as a religious war, where the Ukrainians hated the Poles because they were Catholics, and therefore they were killing, they were going mostly, they were try killing not just Polish noblemen, but Catholic priests. Because, and of course, they didn't only hate the Poles who were Catholics, they hated the Jews, because they were also infidels, and so therefore they killed Jews as well, wherever they went as the infidel. Uh, we don't have great, while we have many contemporaneous accounts of what happened, we don't have great records, since most of the records were destroyed, we don't have great records to give us kind of exact numbers. Uh, we have names of towns that were, where Jews were rounded up and killed, um, of hundreds of such towns, but we don't have exact records to give us numbers. Historians really debate as to how many were killed, and estimates are anywhere between 20,000 and 100,000 Jews that were killed. Um, it's estimated, we, we don't know how many Jews actually lived in the area exactly at that time, uh, but estimate as many as 50% of the Jews of Ukraine were killed. Uh, of course, many managed to escape or hide, um, but 50% of the Jews of Ukraine were killed in these horrible pogroms. Uh, the Jewish communities in Ukraine were devastated. Those that did survive, many of them fled westward across the Carpathian Mountains, which is a mountain range in western Ukraine, over the, over the mountains to what's today Hungary and Romania. And that was the beginning of the Hungarian Jewish community. There was a small Hungarian Jewish community before that, but it was really the huge influx of tens of thousands of refugees um, in 1648 that really began the Jewish community of Hungary. Uh, many other Jews said fled, fled south to Tartar lands under the Ottoman Empire. The Tartars didn't like Jews either. Uh, most of the Jews who came to their lands were taken as slaves and sold on slave markets, um, which was common throughout Tartar lands. Um, for most Jews, thankfully, Jewish communities organized to purchase, go to, they would go to the slave markets and purchase any Jews that were for sale and purchase their freedom. This is something that Jews did throughout our history and really deserves a class of its own, Pidyon Shvuin, how Jews would purchase the freedom of their fellow Jews captured in war. So in a peace agreement that resulted at the end of this war, Kiev and um, much of eastern Ukraine were annexed by the Russian Empire, which was Russian and Orthodox Christian, and the Cossacks preferred to align themselves with the Russians and be part of the Orthodox Christians, um, while Western the Western part of Ukraine remained part of the Polish Kingdom. Um, so Jewish communities quickly um, were reestablished and revived in Western Ukraine, while in Eastern Ukraine, Jews were forbidden to live. Jews had been forbidden for many years already to live in what was Muscovite Russia or a growing Russian kingdom based in Moscow. Jews were forbidden to live over there. And um, Jews were now also forbidden, had been wiped out from Kiev and Eastern Ukraine, and Jews were mostly forbidden to live in Eastern Ukraine at this point. Any questions? Yes, Moral. Um, what the sixteen forty-eight was this was this terrible tragedy. Were there any plagues at that time? Plagues? 
I don't know. I mean, there were plagues always throughout our history. Uh, I don't know if there was any particular plague that hit then. I don't know. Not that I know of. No, but there, I, I don't know. So in the early 1700s, just a couple decades later, uh, a new movement started in Western Ukraine, led by um, Reb Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. This movement became known as Hasidism. And at the time, Jews in Ukraine lived very different than Jews had throughout history. Jews throughout history um, had lived in organized Jewish communities that were very, very structured, the Kihila, the Jewish community, very organized, very structured, um, you know, with communal organizations, uh, rabbis and schools and synagogues, uh, and everything was structured and taken care of for them, the poor were taken care of. Um, in Ukraine, this was true in much of Poland, um, in the Pol kingdom of Poland, Jews tend to live in villages or the shtetl. And the villages did not have organized Jewish communities. Lar large, number of Jew large numbers of Jews lived outside of the organized Jewish community. Jews also, Poland was um, devastated financially from the wars. Um, so Jews were in very bad financial situation. Uh, many of them living very, very, very poor um, throughout really the kingdom of Poland. And um, Jews really suffered, and many of them were in villages and kind of far away from Jewish life. Even in the cities, um, many of the kahilas were not organized or had become, some of the bigger communities, had the leadership had become corrupted, was corrupt. And um, so really there was this disconnect um, in the Jewish community. And so at this time, the Hasidic movement brought Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah um, and brought it down to the masses. In other words, made it practical and realistic. Um, it taught the love for God, love for Torah, love for fellow Jews. It taught how to rise above the daily challenges and serve God with joy. It, turned to, it taught how to live a God-centered life rather than a self-centered life. So the movement spread very quickly across Ukraine, and it really gave kind of rejuvenated or revived Jewish life across the Kingdom of Poland, and it spread really across Ukraine into Poland, Belarus, Lithuania, Hungary, Romania, and beyond. And really within a century, by the early 1800s, most European Jews, Eastern European Jews, and almost all Ukrainian Jews were Hasidic. Now, the Hasidism after the Baal Shem Tov branched up into many different smaller groups. In other words, various Hasidic leaders um, would kind of lead a group of where they would inspire their followers. And so Ukraine became the home of dozens of um, Hasidic, various Hasidic groups um, spread out throughout Ukraine. Most notable was a um, student of the Baal Shem Tov, um, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl, of course, is famous for the reactor incident a couple decades ago. Uh, but Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, which was then a big Jewish community, um, and many of his children and grandchildren led various Hasidic movements um, all across uh, Ukraine. And uh, there were many other Hasidic groups throughout Ukraine. And most Jews of Ukraine associated or were connected to one particular Hasidic group um, or another. And it really brought a new energy to Jewish religious life throughout Eastern Europe and throughout Ukraine. Now, in the second half of the 18th century, this is the late 1700s, the kingdom of Poland was gradually divided among its neighboring empires. It had fallen apart. Um, and so most of Ukraine was incorporated into, and for that matter, Belarus and Lithuania, 
and most of Poland were incorporated into what was now the Russian Empire. It had grown significantly, and it was now a Russian Empire, and most of Ukraine, many Jews were now found within this Russian Empire. The very western part of Ukraine, called Galicia, that's where Lvov has been in the news a lot, Lviv, um, that was... Um, that was part of that was the biggest city in Galicia. Galicia, the Western Ukraine, became part of the Austrian Empire, and they, for the next two hundred years or hundred plus years, had a little bit of a different history. But um, the most of Ukraine became part of the Russian Empire. Now, the Russia now found itself with as many as a million Jews. Until then, Jews had been forbidden from living in Russia. Suddenly there were this huge number of Jews. So the Russian Empire instituted what they, what's called the Pale of Settlement. Essentially they said all those areas of the Kingdom of Poland that had been conquered by Russia, where Jews have lived, already were living, Jews are allowed to live. But they cannot move eastward. They cannot move outside of this Pale of Settlement. And so Jews were forbidden from living in, so while Jews lived in large numbers in Western Ukraine, and Central Ukraine, they were forbidden from living in Kiev or Eastern Ukraine, places like Kharkov or Dnepro. Jews were forbidden from living in these cities or the areas around them. They were outside of what was called the Pale of Settlement. So the Jews were extremely limited on their occupation. They faced huge persecution under Russian rule. And most Jews were extremely poor. Um, professions were banned to them. Universities were banned to them. Um, and Jews were very, very poor and really suffered. They continued to live in villages, although at times they were banned from certain villages. They were banned from villages or banned from different areas. Um, and uh, Jews were extremely poor and faced constant persecution. The Ukrainians were extremely anti-Semitic. And as they had done in 1648, but not to the same, on the same scale, there were regular pogroms. That's where the term pogrom came from. Um, there were regular attacks. Um, local Ukrainians would so get excited about something, get upset at the Jews, and would attack the Jewish community, usually with the, um, without being stopped by the authorities. The Russian government had a hands-off approach when it came to anti-Semitism, and then even inc actively encouraged anti-Semitism. In the early 1800s, a couple decades later, Russia captured southern Ukraine, which had been Tartar lands, from the Ottoman Empire. Now, southern Ukraine was not very densely inhabited at the time. And so the Russians, and this was an area that stretches, if you see a map from Donetsk all the way in the east um, to Kishinev, which is in modern-day Moldova, all of southern Ukraine had been part of um, had been part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, or nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. The Russians captured it, and it now became part of the Russian Empire. However, um, it wasn't densely populated, and they made a great effort to settle the area with land grants, kind of like what we did over here with our Homestead Act. People can go and settle land, and they'll be granted land by the government. Jews were, because Russians were not rushing to move to southern Ukraine, um, it was called Nova Russia, the new Russia. Um, so they allowed, began to allow Jews to move to southern Ukraine. And Jews moved to southern Ukraine in very, very large numbers. Many of them built 
agri- took advantage of the land acts and built agricultural settlements. And there were many farming, Jewish farming towns spread across southern Ukraine. There were many, many, many Jewish farming towns. Jews also moved to the cities. Kherson uh, and Nikolaev, you're hearing them in the news today, Odessa. Um, Jews moved to the cities where they developed ports um, and they um, developed the cities as well. Um, now, most of the Jews, interestingly, that moved to southern Ukraine were not coming from northern Ukraine. Most of the Jews moving to southern Ukraine, and even what today is Moldova, were coming actually from Lithuania and Belarus. Lithuania and Belarus also had a very large Jewish community and much, much larger than the Ukrainian and Polish Jewish communities. Uh, Ukraine and and, uh, Lithuania and Belarus is to the north, uh, to the north of the Pale of Settlement. And so... While Ukrainian Jews were generally referred to as Polish, Polish Jews, uh, because they had the same culture, the same Yiddish dialect as Polish Jews, the Jews of the north, meaning in Lithuania and Belarus, were called Litvish, Lithuanian, but it included a much larger area than Lithuania. And so there, the Jewish community was much more crowded, much larger, and much poorer. And so it was the Jews mostly of of Belarus and Lithuania that moved to southern Ukraine. And they spoke a different Yiddish. They spoke the Yiddish of the north, and they were more connected, family-wise, to Jews much further north. Um, and so we had, there was this big influx of Litvish Yidden, Jews from Lithuania, Belarus, um, that essentially were the, major, the vast majority of Jews living in southern Ukraine at the time. Now, in 1881, any questions? In 1881, Tsar Alexander was assassinated, which sparked a wave of pogroms against the Jews. The Russian Empire wanted to deflect its problems, and therefore they essentially ordered local authorities, hands-off approach, anyone attacks Jews, don't do anything. Um, with time, the Russians even began to encourage by publishing anti-Semitic papers, and they published the famous Protocols of the Elders of Zion about a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, which is still one of the best-selling books in the world today, believe it or not. Um, and they, uh, they really, and the, the waves of pogroms began against Jews throughout the 1880s and 1890s, um, all across really the Pale of Settlement. Uh, which stretched from Latvia um, in the north all the way down to southern Ukraine. Jews began to leave Russia in very, very large numbers. And that really sparked the wave of Jews that moved to the United States. Most Jews in the United States, the vast majority, um, came from what was the Pale of Settlement or the Russian Empire um, and moved during this period between 1880 and 1914. Um, Jews in Russia also began a cultural renaissance um, due to persecution with many new movements. There was a movement called Bilu to resettle the land of Israel. Later, Bilu evolved about a decade or so, a little more than a decade later. It started in the early 1880s. Um, to, it evolved into what became Zionism. 
but it began as an organization to resettle the land of Israel. Also, a whole Yiddish culture rose up then in the late 1800s of Yiddish music, Yiddish drama, books, newspapers. There was a whole Yiddish movement. There were Jews that called for Jewish autonomy within the Russian Empire. Um, they were part of a movement of revolution to depose the Tsar and create a republic, turn the Russian Empire into a republic that will give all the many minorities within the republic autonomy. And they called for Jewish autonomy in the Russian Empire. And this movement it was really a, it was a socialist movement calling for a socialist Jewish community, was became known as the Bund. And uh, still famous, the Bund was also active here in the United States um, later, but it was at, a, at that time the largest Jewish organization in, um, in the Russian Empire. The Bund, the Bund. Bund, B-U-N-D, the Bund. Uh, many Jews also joined various other movements that became popular in Europe, socialism, communism, anarchism, and of course, Jews in large numbers joined Zionism. The, and this culture really spread across all of the Russian Empire. The Russians didn't like it because a lot of it was associated with revolution. And they were very scared of revolution. Um, and they arrested many Jews and many Jews were, eggs, were killed and tortured and as a result. The center of this new Jewish culture was Odessa, which was the southern port that had been built by Jews um, in the early 1800s, um, the southern port of Odessa. It became a magnet. And the reason it became the center was many Jews were trying to get out of Russia. The best, the port city to catch a boat out of the country was in Odessa. So many, many young Jews moved to Odessa uh, looking for a way out of Russia. And Odessa therefore became really the center of Jewish culture um, in um, the Russian Empire. 1905, following the Russo-Japanese War, there was another revolution, and that started to deflect um, the revolution. The Russians started a wave of pogroms across Russia and across Ukraine. Um, it's somewhat ironic, today you hear about um, Ukrainians who are sitting in underground shelters, um, but we have descriptions in 1905 of Jews who sat in shelters, um, basements, you know, hidden basements, um, hiding from the pogroms in 1905. They didn't want anyone to know they were there because they were ransacking Jewish homes and anyone they saw they were killing. And this what happened throughout all of Ukraine, um, but throughout really much of the Russian Empire, but particularly the pogroms were most vicious in Ukraine. In 1911, there was a Jew by the name of Mendel Bayless, who was accused of murdering a Ukrainian that worked in his factory that he managed in Kiev. And he was accused of murdering him. He had been, this person had been found hung, presumably by, uh, uh, had been found dead. And um, he was accused of murdering him for ritual purposes. And this was by far the most famous blood libel because it happened in the 20th century um, when we already had somewhat modern means of communication. And um, they, there were riots throughout Ukraine calling the Jews murderers and demonstrations throughout Ukraine. Um, this trial was 
reported throughout the world, this blood libel, including here in the United States, it was front page of all the papers. Um, and there were many reporters there kind of in the court. They had a trial. Um, it was, the, the trial took a long time. It was a very lengthy trial um, uh, before a jury of Ukrainians. And thankfully he was acquitted at the end, but it gave the world a sense of how anti-Semitic Ukraine was because the Ukrainians were not just blaming him, they were blaming the entire Jewish community. Not only that, they actually knew who the real murderers were and they ignored and there was evidence for the, who the real murderers were. Um, the, ev the evidence in his favor was overwhelming, uh, but he was accused of ritual murder, something that you know, goes, they, goes back to the Middle Ages, but the Ukrainians were still at the time living in the Middle Ages. Any questions? So in 1914, World War I broke out. Jews were seen and the Russian Empire went to war against the Germans, the Austrian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. And so Western Ukraine, as long as Western, as long, along with Poland, Lithuania, were all on the front lines. And the Germans advanced pretty quickly. And um, Jews were seen as a fifth column. They didn't trust Jews, the, the Russians. And so they forced them from the front lines and sent them eastward. Large numbers of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Jews, were expelled from the front lines and forced to march eastward. Um, Jews were allowed, for the first time, to move into eastern part of Ukraine and further east in Russia. So the Pale of Settlement was temporarily revoked. Jews were allowed to move beyond the borders of the Pale of Settlement. Um, but hundreds of thousands of Jews became refugees overnight. Many of them coming into cities in eastern Ukraine, Kiev, Kharkov, Dnepro, many of them moving even further eastward. Um, but they be, were suddenly... Each city was suddenly had an influx of tens of thousands of refugees. The Jewish community in Russia and elsewhere worked very hard to support these refugees. Um, that, that the Joint Distribution Committee was created in the United States in 1915 for those refugees to set, to help those refugees um, in uh, Russia. In 1917, the Tsar was deposed. And the Russian Empire became a republic. Later that year, communists took control of the government. Vladimir Lenin led the communists take control of the government. It was called the October Revolution, which actually happened in November, but their calendar was a month off ours. And um, he made one of the first things he did is he made a peace treaty with the Germans. And as part of the treaty with the Germans, um, the Germans insisted on a number of independent countries being created. Uh, Poland, a uh, number of other countries. So among the countries that the Germans insisted that essentially cutting, being cut out of the, what had been the Russian Empire, but Lenin had campaigned on and fought for peace. And so he, as part, one of the countries that was created was the, uh, was Ukraine, Republic of Ukraine. Um, so Ukraine now became a new independent country under German occupation. The first time Ukraine ever became a country um, in the modern sense, since the Kievan Rus, which had been gone already for hundreds and hundreds of years and controlled a very different area. 
Um, now, but it was under German occupation. Now, the new Ukraine was supposed to give freedom to all its citizens. Germany, although it was an imperial country, it did have freedoms, right? People were free. Jews had were emancipated. Jews already for some time were totally free um, and equal citizens in Germany. And so Ukraine was to give freedom to all of its Germ all of its citizens. Months later, the Germans were defeated in World War One, and at that point, they left Ukraine. And Ukraine became truly independent, became an independent republic. The new Ukraine, while originally it was a dictatorship ruled by Germans, um, the new Ukraine was now going to be a democracy. And the Ukrainian nationalist movement was going to create a democracy. The, Ukraine was, the new Ukraine was now 10% Jewish. It had a large Russian population, large Jewish population, large Polish population, Tartar population, there were many, many minorities, majority were Ukrainians. And so Ukraine, its three, its largest majority minorities were Russians and Jews. Jews were made up 10% of the country. And so they made Yiddish as one of their three official languages, along with Ukrainian and Russian. And Jews were granted citizenship and full rights for the first time in in their history, they were granted full emancipation, full rights, equal citizens. However, the Republic of Ukraine did not last very long. There was a Soviet revolution in Ukraine. In other words, the same Soviets that had made a revolution in Russia um, engineered a revolution in Ukraine. And that the revolution in Ukraine destroyed the very short-lived Ukrainian Republican government, and it began a two, this is 1918, and it began a horrific two-year civil war. The civil war was a three-way war between communists, the Reds they were called, the Russian Republicans that were fighting still a civil war in Russia, known as the Whites, and the Ukrainian nationalists that were fighting for their own independence that had normally given the Jews freedom. But during this time, many, many other warlords rose up. Many leaders of regiments from the former Russian Empire that had fought in World War I essentially became their own warlords, running their own troops. They supported themselves by pillaging whichever areas they happened to conquer. And Ukraine became really um, Ukraine was torn apart by this horrific civil war with three main actors, but dozens of smaller actors. What all these actors, they all pillaged, which is how they supported themselves, by pillaging from the locals, taking food, taking things from the locals wherever they came. Um, so it was horrific for everyone. But it was particularly horrific for Jews. The Jews were attacked by all the above groups, by the Reds, by the Whites, by the Ukrainian nationalists, and worst of all, by the various militias that had rose up. Wherever people came, wherever these groups came, in many of these places, they would round, the troops would come, they would round up the Jews, rape the women, kill, take all their money, and kill all of them, men, women, and children. And this happened in town after town, place after place. Jews, the Jewish Jews were just rounded up and killed. And those that managed to escape, 
A few weeks later, another troop came into town and went through the same thing again and again and again because the towns changed hands dozens of times throughout this two-year civil war. The best were the Reds, who officially were led by a Jew, Leon Trotsky, and um, officially were not allowed to pillage and were not allowed to harm Jews. Um, and many Jews actually fought with the Reds. Um, but even the Reds were responsible for many pogroms as well, the communists. It's estimated this tragedy was probably one of the worst, if not the worst tragedy for Jews from the destruction of the Second Temple through to the Holocaust. It's estimated between 100 and 400,000 Jews were killed in these pogroms over two years. Most of the Jewish community in Western Ukraine was decimated. There were almost no Jews left in much of Western Ukraine after this was over. Eastern Ukraine wasn't hit as bad, had fallen under communist rule much earlier, and Eastern Ukraine survived the worst of it, but some places were hit as well, especially in the north. Um, but Western Ukraine was almost entirely decimated. These pogroms did not get much attention, and we don't know much about them, and for a number of reasons. There weren't many survivors, for one. Um, although we do have a lot of accounts. We do have a lot of contemporary accounts that were recorded, diaries and the like, newspaper accounts. Um, there are many, many, many accounts of it that were recorded at the time. Um, but also because right afterwards, the war ended with the communists taking control of all of Ukraine. And when the communists took control of, all, over all of Ukraine, they essentially shut down talk about it. So the locals who had survived were not allowed to talk about it. Only those that had left the West could talk about it. So it really was, and then later, two decades later, just over two decades later, was overshadowed, of course, by the Holocaust. But it was definitely one of the worst pogroms. And uh, we could say that Ukraine was really home to the two worst pogroms throughout our time, but the two worst pogroms in European history before the Holocaust, the Xeris Tachvetat, the 1648-1649 pogroms, and the Ukrainian Civil War pogroms in 1918-1919, um, the two worst um, devastations of Jewish communities um, in European history before the Holocaust happened in Ukraine by Ukrainians. And of course, in between, there were many pogroms. Um, to put it mildly, Jew Ukrainians were viciously anti-Semitic, viciously. Um, now, Jews have a long history in Ukraine, and they do. Um, in recent weeks, um, I've heard a number of Jews whose grandparents came from Ukraine, and many of us, our grandparents came from Ukraine, say they feel for Ukraine, which we all do because they were attacked now for um, unfairly, for no, you know, just no reason we, we all feel for them. Uh, but they feel for Ukraine because they have Ukrainian history. Um, the truth is that Jews were never considered Ukrainian and our grandparents were hated by the Ukrainians. So we don't have any Ukrainian, um, we don't have any Ukrainian blood or Ukrainian background. Um, I think, I don't think it'd be correct to say that doesn't mean that we should empathize, we shouldn't empathize with the Ukrainians. I think we should, but we don't have Ukrainian, the Ukrainians were 
horrific to our grandparents if your grandparents were from Ukraine, and definitely your grandparents never considered themselves Ukrainians. Um, in fact, even as Jews began to adopt other languages, they didn't adopt Ukrainian, they began to speak Russian, partially because they were forced to, but partially because of the hatred that Ukrainians had. They felt closer to Russians that were less anti-Semitic than Ukrainians. So by 1920, the Soviets had taken control of all of Ukraine. Um, the Soviets immediately began a um, uh, move to uh, bring communism into Ukraine, um, including taking away farmlands from farmers, taking away businesses from Jews. They also began to destroy Jewish communities. In other words, the organized Jewish communities take over, be, make synagogues into um, community centers or, you know, places, um, play, uh, uh, take away, confiscate synagogues, um, close down Jewish schools, force everyone to go to communist public schools. And there was this Sovietization of Ukrainian Jewry. And Ukrainian Jewry, which had already been devastated, their kahilas, their organized communities had mostly been destroyed, um, really didn't have much pushback. Um, and within a decade, most Jews had lost much of their Jewish identity. You couldn't go to synagogues, synagogues were closed. Jewish schools were not, there were, there were, were, there were no Jewish schools. Um, even Jewish culture, well, initially the communists embraced Jewish culture. They even, they created, Lenin had this system of allowing for each national nationality to, and created the various republics, allowed each nationality to express itself um, uh, within communism, creating various socialist republics. Um, they allowed Jews to express themselves as well. Um, it allowed for Yiddish culture to flourish, but it didn't last very long. Within a decade, all the non-Russian culture was shut down, including Jewish culture. There was actually a Jewish section of the Communist Party that was aggressive in destroying the Jewish community, worked very hard to totally destroy uh, the Jewish community um, or what was left of the Jew of Jewish life um, in Soviet Ukraine. So two decades later, 1940, um, when the war breaks out, there is very, very little Jewish life. There was, by the way, underground schools and underground synagogues, and there was an underground Jewish community that we've spoken about before. Um, Alta's two grandfathers studied in Bardichev, which is in Ukraine, where um, in an underground school, and they were caught and arrested. Um, one day we could tell the story in a uh, story of its own, um, but that was in Ukraine as well. There were underground schools, but that was the exception, not the rule. Um, the vast majority of, the vast, almost all Jews um, essentially were had lost much of their Jewish identity due to the Sovietization of Ukraine, of, of all of the Soviet Union, and uh, forcing Jews out of, um, and shutting down Jewish life. In 1941, in what was called Operation Barbarossa, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. And in what was called the Blitzkrieg, they quickly conquered, and within a couple weeks, they conquered much of Ukraine. At that time, there were still close to two, this is even after all the immigration and all the pogroms, there were close to two million Jews living in Ukraine. 
Some Jews still lived in Ukrainian villages in the countryside, um, in southern Ukraine, where there had been less pogroms, in, or in uh, eastern Ukraine, um, definitely in the big cities, mostly in Kiev, Odessa, uh, Dnepro, as it was called then, um, and Kharkov and other big cities, but also in small towns. The Soviets made a very big effort. Um, they didn't fight back the Blitzkrieg. The Germans just rolled forward. And they just, the, the, the Soviets didn't even try to fight. There wasn't much they could do. Uh, but they made a very concentrated effort to encourage citizens to flee ahead of the Nazis, ahead of the Nazi onslaught. And they particularly focused on Jews, telling everyone to flee. They're going to be killed. They should flee. And as a result, as many as half of Ukraine's Jews fled on trains eastward in those few, first few weeks of the war. Now, the Nazis followed their invasion into Russia which with what was called Einsatzgruppen, which were groups of killers, essentially, that rounded up Jews wherever they went, every town, every city. They rounded up all the Jews in the town, all the Jews in the cities, unlike in Poland where there were ghettos and concentration camps. In Ukraine, it was, um, they just round them up, took them to outside of the city, made them dig pits and shot them. The most notable of these places was in Babiyar, in Kiev, where some 100,000 Jews of Kiev were murdered. Now, the Einsatzgruppen numbered that really crossed the entire Russian front, which was very large, because Russia has, Russia, has, Russia has a very, very large um, uh, Western border, um, the Soviet Union. And so they only numbered about 1,400 troops. There weren't that many of them. The way they did it is they only had a handful in each town, but they were helped by the Ukrainians. They were helped by Belarusians and by Lithuanians and by Polish and by Ukrainians. But Ukrainians more than anyone else. The Ukrainians, most Ukrainians, not all, but most Ukrainians sided with the Nazis against the Russians. Many Ukrainians deplored the Russians, wanted independence, um, and therefore they sided with the Nazis against them. Many Ukrainians also, as we said, had a visceral hatred for Jews. And so Ukrainians were really the ones that did the dirty work, rounding up Jews in each town, in each place where they went. It was local Ukrainians. Ukrainians would find, would seek out Jews where they were hiding um, and try to find Jews. Ukrainians probably took part in the Holocaust more than any other nationality after Germans not only rounding up and deporting and reporting Jews in Ukraine, but they also served as the best guards in camps across Europe. The Russians used them because they were the most vicious. There were, of course, some Ukrainians that did save Jews, but that was extremely rare. By and large, most of the Ukrainian population were actively, in, or most of them were not involved at all, but many, many Ukrainians were involved in um, finding Jews, killing Jews, and even many served as guards in camps across Europe. There were partisans that fought in the forests, mostly in Belarus, which is more forested than Ukraine, but also in Ukraine. Um, there were partisans that fought in the forests, um, and there's been some references now with the war going on in Ukraine. Most of the partisans were Russians and Jews, not Ukrainians. Not that there were none, but most were uh, Russians and Jews. Most Ukrainians sided with the Nazis. Now, after the Holocaust, many Ukrainian Jews 
return to Ukraine. As much as half of the Ukrainian population, the population of Jews of Ukraine had survived by fleeing eastward. They suffered uh, from famine during the war. Many of them fought in the Red Army. Many of the men fought in the Red Army. Um, but many of them returned to Ukraine afterwards. Almost none went back to the shtetls. If you go to the villages in Ukraine, there's no Jews there anymore. Um, almost all of them settled in the cities, the town, the larger towns, the cities. There they faced both anti-Semitism as an official Soviet policy. Um, no longer pogroms, but Jews were kept out of universities. There were quotas of how many Jews could be in universities, how many Jews could be in various professions. Um, Jews had a hard time getting hired, um, and they also faced oppression from local Ukrainians. Um, yet many Jews succeeded, becoming professional, became successful. However, by now, there was almost nothing left of Jewish practice. Most Jews that had been involved in even the Jewish underground were either killed in the war or had left, fled the Soviet Union. Um, there was briefly a chance to leave the Soviet Union after the war, and many practicing Jews left at that time. Uh, story of itself for another time. And so those Jews that remained in Ukraine knew almost nothing about what it means to be Jewish. They were Jews who were raised in the Soviet Union without any Jewish education. They knew they were Jewish because the Russians and the Ukrainians would not let them forget they were Jewish. They had it in their passport that they were Jewish. So they knew they were Jewish, but they knew almost nothing about what it means to be Jewish. They know about Passover, Yom Kippur, circumcision they didn't practice, which was illegal in the Soviet Union. They didn't know anything. Um, but yet they didn't know, they didn't speak, they, only the really older ones spoke Yiddish, most of them didn't even speak Yiddish. Um, there remained a token synagogue in each big city, and there was a very small active Jewish underground, but it was small. Odessa, which had been the center of Jewish culture, remained, retained some cultural institutions, a theater, and a little bit of Yiddish from the older people, and Jews there were a little bit more actively Jewish. But Jews knew almost nothing about Jewish, about what it means to be, they knew they were Jewish, they knew almost nothing about what it means to be Jewish. Starting in the 1970s, um, many Jews tried to leave, to move to Israel. Um, what became known as refuseniks, Jews that re were refused visas, and um, therefore they, once they refused visas, they became no longer accepted in society and usually fired from their jobs. And as the movement grew, gradually they also began to learn more about being Jewish. Jews from the United States and Europe went, visited, and helped teach people about Judaism being Jewish, teach them Hebrew. Um, and so gradually Jews in Ukraine began to get a more, a stronger Jewish identity, getting more of a sense of what it means to be Jewish, many of, the, many of them wanting to leave Ukraine to move to Israel. At the same time, there was a Ukrainian nationalist organization that grew called the Ruch. And it became very prominent across Ukraine. It was illegal, of course. They were agitating for Ukrainian independence. Now, the Ruch found a common cause with the Refuseniks and supported the Jewish community. And for the first time in probably Ukrainian history, Ukrainian nationalists became pro-Jewish and embraced the Jewish community. And so when the Soviet Union began to open up in the second half of the 1980s, many Jews were gradually able to leave to Israel, many came to the United States, many came to other places. Uh, but many Jews remained in Ukraine. 
Well, probably a majority of the Jews in Ukraine left, but a very significant minority remained. In 1991, the Soviet Union fell, Ukraine became an independent country. And so many Jews remained in Ukraine, and Ukraine offered freedom to Jews. The leaders of the Ukrainian nationalist movement had been pro-Jewish, pro, uh, had been pro-freedom, um, emancipation for everyone, and really, um, really uh, turned against anti-Semitism. And Ukraine, in Ukraine, anti-Semitism was no longer socially acceptable as it, in much of the world today, thankfully. There were still and there are still fringe neo-Nazi and anti-Semitic groups in Ukraine, as there are everywhere else, including here in the United States. Most Ukrainians, and surveys show this, ADL and other organizations have done surveys, most Ukrainians are no longer anti-Semitic. And the government and political parties today embrace Jews. Jews have become very successful. There's very little um, barriers for them in Ukraine um, to the point that in 2020, they elected a Jew, Vladimir Zelensky, who's become very famous as president of Ukraine. It's hard to know how many Jews are in Ukraine or were in Ukraine a month ago. And we definitely don't know how many are there today. Um, the official census gave about 50,000. It's certainly much lower than the real number. 50,000 are those that self-report as Jews. Um, on, on the census. Um, they're probably the more active Jews, those that are active in the Jewish community. Um, more accurate estimates is probably somewhere between 100 to 400,000 Jews living in Ukraine. So Ukraine remains a very, very large Jewish community, one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. Um, and the new Ukrainians are very different than their grandparents throughout the ages. They've been welcoming the Jews. They've assisted the Jewish communities. Many buildings, and properties that had belonged to Jewish communities before the Soviets were returned to Jews. Many Torah scrolls that were found in kind of had been dumped in storage um, by the by the Soviets were returned to the Jewish community, um, and the Jewish community really has been supported um, by the uh, by the Ukrainians. And today there are well till a month ago. There were large, flourishing Jewish communities across Ukraine, including in Kiev has a large community with many synagogues and schools and kosher um, and kosher um, and kosher supermarkets and restaurants. Um, also in Kharkov, in Dnipro, in Odessa, and there are dozens of small communities across Ukraine. In fact, the largest Jewish community center in the world today is in Dnipro, which is in central Ukraine. Um, it has a very large active, it's one of the largest cities in Ukraine, has a very large and active Jewish community. And over there, there is a what's called the Menorah Center. It has 20, a 20 story building, seven buildings altogether, the large, largest of which is 20 floors, Jewish community center, uh, which includes restaurants and hotels and social halls and synagogues and um, offices and museums, and it's, it's really kind of a center of Jewish life. Um, we don't know what's left or what will survive when this is over, but Ukraine has really, the Ukrainian Jewish community is, has a very, very long history, as we've said, going back over 2,000 years. 
Uh, it was, it's been very large and had a very, very large part of Ukrainian history. Jews were, for much of the history, a very, very large percentage of Ukraine. And um, remain, today their numbers are much smaller. There may be 1% of the population um, because of immigration uh, and because of all the murders and pogroms and everything. Um, but there's still a significant Jewish community, a very active, after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, a very active Jewish community has sprung up in Ukraine um, with you know, schools and yeshivas and you know, supermarkets and synagogues uh, really built all over Ukraine. Um, and it's become kind of a very large Jewish center with multiple cities being uh, having large Jewish centers. Unfortunately, all that came to an abrupt stop uh, a couple weeks ago when Ukraine was invaded. Um, and uh, many of those communities are now struggling, as we know. Uh, many of those communities are struggling for um, food to help the um, to help people uh, to help people escape, which is very expensive to do. Uh, and uh, therefore, I definitely encourage you to do your best to try to support those communities. Um, the communities in Ukraine also became very wealthy um, after the after the fall of the Soviet Union, thanks to a number of Jewish oligarchs, perhaps uh, maybe not in the best ways that we're proud of, but uh, that's how they funded many of these things. They are mostly self-funded, the centers in Ukraine. Uh, but right now, most of those people have lost all their money because their businesses are destroyed. So they're really reliant on the Jewish community here for support.